Welcome to Herrick Does That, a podcast on current legal topics, relevant industry and legal trends, and significant developments in the law, brought to you by the attorneys of Herrick Feinstein. I am Belinda Schwartz, Herrick's Executive Chair, and I want to thank you for joining us. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Herrick's podcast series. I'm Belinda Schwartz. I'm the Executive Chair of the firm. I'm co-chair of the Real Estate Department. And I'm excited to have my friend, John Tevsanoglu, with us today. John started Caldera Real Estate Ventures, which is a CIO on-demand advisory platform. Welcome, John. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you got to this point where you've created this very clever advisory platform? Thank you and uh, good morning. It's such a pleasure to be chatting with you as, as one of the first things to start a very productive week. So thank you so much for having me on. This is a pretty valuable uh, conversation for me because I think you're one of the few people that were able to see my kind of growth story in New York and in the U.S. over the years. And um, that means a lot to me. So Caldera is a chief investment officer, CIO on demand strategic advisory platform that I started and coming from a 14-year career of um, investments, developments, and financings and having worked with some very prominent family offices, um, I started this platform to partner up with global family offices and ultra high net worth individuals uh, and provide them independent, conflict-free strategic advice for real estate investment strategies. Um, it's a simple idea. Yeah, it actually exists in the um, non-real estate world as the OCIO concept, outsourced CIO concept that you're very familiar with. And um, it really aims to solve a big problem for these family offices that don't necessarily want to commit to a full-time CIO or a whole team because it's a costly uh, proposition and it's a very time-consuming, daunting effort. However, if they don't have a CIO and a team, they lack a systematic approach to real estate investing. So that's that's what I'm trying to solve. And John, you come from an interesting background because uh, you're originally from Turkey, right? And yet you've spent a lot of time with uh, U.S.-based real estate companies. So I'm curious, was this something that you saw as a need to help support foreign investors or more broadly all types of family office investors. Absolutely, all, all types of family office investors, but as you very accurately identified, uh, and, and I did the same thing, this goes very well for um, international family offices and high net worth individuals. And this doesn't necessarily mean somebody somewhere in the world that just doesn't know anything about US real estate. A lot of my clients are actually very sophisticated, but they don't simply have the infrastructure they maybe had back in the day, they don't have it anymore because obviously families have different considerations, things change, people move out or move their businesses. But we also work with people who are not even in real estate. My background is very diverse. I'm originally from Istanbul, Turkey. I There I went to a private German school, didn't live in Germany. I came here for grad school to New York and I work with uh, Middle Eastern families, I work with uh, Asian investors, I work with local New York investors, with Turks. Uh, so my diverse background really lends itself to, to create this global platform. 
Yeah, I love that about your experience and your background. I'm curious, do you think that foreign investors into New York City real estate particularly have a unique way of transacting? Like I know a lot of people ask me, you know, because I we have some foreign clients as well. And um, they ask me whether they transact differently or whether they need to learn the rules of the road differently. Curious what you think about that. I think I think it, it it's it's very complicated and everyone's situation is different and 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 that's why I think we we kind of serve the same clients from different angles because if you think about investments for wealthy families, which can be a very personal. Uh, decision, frankly. Not everybody has very set and defined investment strategies. The only other person, trusted advisor, they can ask about this is their lawyer. So I think they come to you first and try to understand the complexities and the legality of uh, U.S. real estate investing first. Then as a second step, they may come to a advisory company like us to understand what goes into an investment and strategy creation and um, execution. In my experience, a lot of international um, clients have just simply different considerations to invest. They don't have very defined timelines. They have different considerations. A lot of companies have different political environment. In my mind, being a, a Turkish American at this point, U.S. is still a very good investment strategy for a lot of people, and people want to be here no matter what's happening in the market. But obviously, people are very sophisticated. They're cautious about what's happening in this market also, but they still want to be here for sure. It's interesting because, of course, there's so much, I'll call it disruption. You could call it distress, but in the U.S. real estate market, particularly you know, in different asset classes. And uh, yet we all know that there were many people who were very successful investing in this kind of disruptive market. Um, and I'm curious how your clients think about this market in particular going through what it's going through, these perhaps structural changes, existential changes. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. They definitely agree with you. Um, and I agree with you also, and, and, and I think you, you are one of the um, few special people that really understand investment, but also understand legal structuring. I know you work with a lot of family offices, anywhere from really institutional structuring to servicing them on, on, on a deal-by-deal -deal basis. And we, we frankly worked on so many deals together uh, over my career here, too. Um, they certainly follow it pretty closely. Uh, the disruption is likely to be bigger in their origin country, maybe with the exception of uh, some areas in Middle East, because I'm actually uh, right now talking to a lot of uh, clients and potential clients there. Middle East is doing very well in itself. So they are, they are investing in the Middle East uh, unless they have very different uh, considerations. This dislocation in the market, especially the uh, Fed funds related dislocation, I think is very appealing to a lot of people. And because of this flexibility that a family office can provide into these investments, and because, as we talked many times before, this dislocation also interrupted institutional investing and capital raising, 
everybody turned their sights to this alternative capital, let's call it family office capital, that is not a defined capital or strategy or timeline. So let's drill down on that a little bit, John. So we are using the term family office, and it means a lot of different things to different people. And I wanted to drill down a little bit on that, how you understand family office. Yeah, family office could be anything. In my mind, a family office investor is a wealthy family, a very wealthy person who either accumulated wealth on their own, and that doesn't necessarily be real estate, but obviously our subject is real estate. Maybe they inherited that wealth, and there are changes in the family structure. They just want to first preserve that capital, and then they want to grow that capital by investing it. Depending on the size of this investment, they have a lot of options, obviously. And I'm not talking about a person who wants to invest a million dollars into United States real estate. I mean, they may just simply end up buying an apartment or giving it to a wealth management firm for other options. But depending on the size, I'm talking about uh, wealthier investors that want to have more direct exposure. That's what I call a family office. Some of them are very established. Some of them are not established. They could be just one person who heads up the wealth and makes investment decisions on behalf of the family. They may have a second-hand person that kind of deals with everything else. But I'm seeing that people don't have really deep benches in terms of the team. That's where we come in. We become the extension of that team. Yeah, it's interesting because I work with a lot of so-called family offices, whether you call them high net worth or super high net worth, or you call them private investment management companies, which put a little less emphasis on the family as the core of the investing wealth, and uh, sometimes considering that you might want to allow your next generation not to feel obligated to be a part of the family investing protocol. But they typically, I find, are more flexible. But you're right, a lot of them don't have a deep built out bench. And that's because it's expensive to have people full time on your staff, whether it's a CIO, whether it's a general counsel or whatever. And depending on the scale of the family office, they would like, I think, like your idea of being sort of a CIO for hire um, is very clever. And you also mentioned at the beginning, John, you mentioned something about less conflicts. And I'm curious if you could just clarify what you meant by that. Yeah, I think so. The advisory, the third party advisory business obviously exists. I I haven't come up with that idea. And the external CIO concept exists in the institutional world with the fiduciary responsibility. That actually means that you have to be properly registered. And this is also I'm actually working on getting alternative licenses for what I do. So we're fully registered on that sense, but we're not collecting anybody's money right now. Uh, And so we don't have that fiduciary responsibility. If you conflict-free advice means that you're really advising people on investments by putting them first. A third-party advisory uh, has to be that way. That's why what we do, I think, kind of differentiates itself 
because it is not a intermediary or it is not a brokerage model. It is a, a retainer model with some other fee structures, but the advice is always paid upfront, so it can be independent. So on paper, um, even with the legal structure, we're not incentivized to close a deal. We are incentivized to create the best strategy and implement that strategy for the client. If that still doesn't work, we're fine. And our advice could be, okay, this is probably not good for you. Let's not do this deal or let's renegotiate this partnership structure. That to me is the conflict-free advice, uh, not pushing your own product or not being incentivized to close just any deal. I can relate to that because I very much appreciate being involved in our clients' business decisions, but at the end of the day, I owe a duty to them, a duty of loyalty above and beyond. And so my advice can be just whatever it is that I think is what's best for them. You know, I, I do enjoy that role that I play with different families and different clients. I want to go back also now to uh, the flexibility of family offices. And, you know, everyone is always in this market looking for introductions to large family offices to invest in their deals. And I think you and I both know why they think that those clients would make good investment partners for them. But I'd like to hear from you what you think about that. Definitely. And, and I think it's good to be it's a good time to really focus on the family office or alternative capital market right now, uh, because, as I mentioned before, the institutional world has has really frozen the institutional world, meaning the more defined strategies, the big money sources, the limited partners that have massive teams uh, that certainly don't need a CIO and they have all their own CIOs and they have to invest that money at some point. Right now, they're not doing anything. This dislocation obviously is affecting, I think, everybody except the really top five managers like the Blackstones and Carlisles of the world. I think they keep raising a lot of money from the institutional world but they seem to be the only address of that capital if it goes anywhere. The rest of the really good managers, which is 90% of the market, is having difficulty raising any capital to get their funds off the ground or to keep doing their deals and keep uh, employing their teams for the right execution. Everybody turned their sight to this alternative capital world, uh, which could be anything. Family office, I think, has a connotation to an allocator model, a passive investor, if you would, that kind of works with an operator, works with a financial advisor, kind of has a hands-off experience with investing. But I think family offices are getting more and more active, getting more and more interested in getting into direct investment strategies, not just real estate, but obviously our subject is real estate. They want to have that more direct exposure, a little bit more control, not just become one person in a fund, but maybe control a separate managed account and have that trust relationship with one operator fund the platform that way. I think that's that's becoming more the norm these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I find that, you know, obviously family offices usually have a lot more ability to be nimble. They don't have to exit an investment at a certain time. 
They don't have to get a certain return necessarily. Um, they usually have a longer horizon, um, but they're very sophisticated. And because they can be nimble, I also find that a lot of them have gone from being equity investors to being debt investors as they see the banks sort of sitting on the sidelines more. And uh, there's a lot of opportunity, but it requires underwriting a lot of different types of deals, which I would imagine you can help them with quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. We, we do that every day because there's a lot of fun documents out there, a lot of good managers out there, a lot of good strategies out there. It's very difficult to choose from. It's a good time for the family offices to have these opportunities to choose from, but there really needs to be a very thorough, independent manager due diligence and also deal due diligence. Uh, what people are doing, I am also identifying massive opportunities in the uh, private debt, commercial private debt uh, market. I actually um, wrote a research paper on this the other day. I mean, if you're, if you're thinking about the actual numbers, $900 billion of commercial mortgages maturing this year and next year to a market that is maybe three times higher borrowing costs, lower valuations, lower pro proceeds, more personal guarantees required by banks and the lending market pulling back. Yes, there is a lot of gaps in the capital stack. Obviously, some people are fine with more subordinate debt. Some people want to be in the senior position. There are a lot of nuances and complexities there. Um, and if you don't have a big team, you're not able to really implement that strategy in a systematic way. That, that's where we help. I find that some of the family offices that I represent have the philosophy of low leverage, which allows them to not have to refinance or sell into a market that cannot accommodate them. And yet over the past several years, so many real estate investors have layered on that leverage, right? I mean, it's first mortgage debt, it's MES debt, it's PREF equity that's really MES-ish. Um, and I'm curious whether your clients have a particular mindset about leverage. That's a good question. Look, I think the really old school family offices tend to be uh, risk averse, uh, but they also know the uh, importance of refinancing. And I think people did take advantage of the really low interest rates and refinance their properties in the last few years. So I think they're good and they're not going to sell. People who uh, really considered, I think, selling some of their portfolio, even if they're family offices and they have a long horizon, because there was a time, I think, in 2019, maybe even 20, with such low interest rates and high valuations, people were able to get really good prices for some of their portfolios probably very pleasantly surprised about it. And they have other strategies to put that money into. And depending on strategies of a family office, that could be anything. They can just sell a real estate and go you know, buy a company, obviously. Tax and estate planning, which you also work uh, on a lot, is very important. You know, They took advantage of the. If they didn't take advantage, they're kind of not sellers right now, unless they really need the money for something else. But they may be looking to buy um, there are a lot of, I think, miscommunication about these families. Yes, they do have a long-term horizon. They are very flexible. 
but nobody is buying a $80 million property all cash, because why would you? Elon Musk did not buy Twitter all cash. Uh, so I think, you know, that, you know, especially in the, uh, in the intermediary world, there are some misconceptions. Everybody who comes from wealth like that, whether it's inherited, whether they made it themselves, they tend to be very sophisticated as a rule of thumb. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to forget to ask you, um, there was always this notion that the foreign investors really wanted to invest in class A core real estate in a handful of markets and, you know, the big money center markets. I'm curious whether that's changed of late, going back to our original conversation about investing in U.S. real estate. I think it's changed a little bit because people started reading about things and brainstorming. But I think still, as a rule for an international investor who does not have too many holdings and is not very well versed in the U.S. real estate strategy, they still would want to invest in a city that they either have traveled to uh, or they can easily travel to or they could proudly brag about having holdings in that city. And that usually really coincides with the big money uh, cities like you mentioned before. Um, to me, in that world, I think investments, like I said before, it's very personal. I think personal considerations go into investment considerations and investment considerations affect personal uh, uh, lifestyle choices. I think still people want to be in New York type of places. However, people also are getting a lot more sophisticated and they know about the headwinds regulation-wise, otherwise in cities like New York and obviously lifestyle-wise after, after COVID, uh, but they still have an emphasis on those gateway markets. A very good way for them to, I think, diversify without the necessity of being an expert in every market could be investing with fund managers to get that geographic diversification or even family offices, co-invest with family offices, like-minded family offices. And it doesn't necessarily be a close-ended fund, uh, whatever high-fee situations. People can get better deals right now because of the market. Yeah, I agree with you on co-investing with family offices and the like. And um, John, I think one of the reasons you and I enjoy working together and talking about all of this is because we have a similar mindset. I think we not only do we love real estate and business and all of that, but we very much enjoy introducing our clients to each other and to deals. And I know that that's something that you try to do all the time. Absolutely. I think what we do is very similar. We just see it from a different angle, of course, you from a more legal and transactional complexity angle. And I see it from a more maybe high level, broader geography investment strategy way. But we certainly obviously have been collaborating and are collaborating on many things and continuing to do so because we do have that same mindset. And that's what you need because you need two with two trusted advisors and probably two in-house people, uh, even maybe on the mid-level, you should be able to manage a big portfolio uh, without too many accidents. That's what real estate is. John, this has been a wonderful conversation. 
I'm excited for you with this new company that you've set up. And I think it's uh, very timely. And I look forward to speaking with you and seeing where things are going, because I know you're quite busy already, which is great. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate the uh, opportunity and the lovely conversation. Obviously, being a high level advisor, I also have very good advisors and mentors and people around me. And being a part of my advisory board also means a lot, both personally and business wise. So thank you for that also. You're welcome. Have a great day, John. You too, Belinda. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for joining us for Herrick's podcast, Herrick Does That. To learn more about our firm and to listen to additional podcast episodes, please visit us at www.herrick.com.